Hi, everybody. It's Sherry. Just want to give you a brief intro. Today, we are addressing the FDA's recognition of ISO 10993 Part 18 for 2020. So they released it in their consensus standard database. They have extended recognition with some exceptions. So Don's going to go through that in some detail for you today. If you want more information about this type of testing, you can go to www.namsa.com slash testing. Thanks so much for listening today. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Bibbins here with Don Pohl. We have a bonus episode today, Don. Bonus episode. Bonus episode. Yeah. We are scheduling and releasing a bonus episode here because the FDA has given us some new information to talk about. They have recently issued their extent of recognition in their consensus standards for ISO 10993 Part 18 2020. So I think it came a little faster than we thought it would. Yeah, I always, you know, give it a little time, you know, six months to a year to to, to happen. But uh, here we are. So it was what early this year. Yeah, so I guess from the six month schedule, it's about right on time. Yeah, a little little under maybe. So they they had um they released this on July sixth, twenty twenty, and so we are recording this to just to talk about the the changes or the not the changes the the extent of recognition a little bit, have Don talk it up to y'all so he can give you an outline, an overview of what it might be and how it might affect testing. I think all in all, it's pretty, it's pretty good. <laughs> and the fact that there's yeah. not a lot of, not a lot of exceptions where like we've seen before, maybe with like part one. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's certainly a lot to recognize or not recognize from an FDA perspective when it comes to part 18. So yeah, it, to be quite honest, I was a little, I was a little surprised that there wasn't more that, you know, the FDA indicated that they didn't recognize. So yeah, from that point of view, I think it's, you know, it's good. And um, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it speaks to the point of, you know, how things can, I guess, work when you know somebody like the FDA or a regulatory agency like the FDA gets involved in developing standards as well. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. I think you know because they were heavily involved in in part 18 and there's even things in part 18 that are specific to the FDA maybe that left less than for them to challenge and they were able to recognize it more easily this time. So let's kind of Don maybe explain to us what you know the consensus standards process is, or not the process, but what it means, and then what a scope of recognition is. So our extent of recognition is that they issued a supplementary information sheet in their consensus standards database. Yeah. So certainly, you know, I guess first step in that process, just going out to the FDA's website, to the consensus standards database, and doing the simple search for 10993-18 in that database. And you'll find one return if you put in that designation 109318 and it'll be the 2020 version of it and and then in that supplementary information sheet you know there's 
multiple components to it, but the first thing I always scroll down and look at is the section titled Extent of Recognition. What you're hoping to see there, <laughs> to make it real easy, is something that just simply states complete standard. And you're good because they, they recognize, and there are standards out there that the FDA recognizes in their entirety, and they'll just say that they recognize the complete standard. In this case, that's not the situation. There's, um, I think, five things that the FDA um, indicates they don't recognize. But after uh, that extent of recognition, there's a rationale for the recognition. So a little bit of insight on why the FDA doesn't recognize certain parts. It's not always, you know, extensive. It's not a long discussion. It's just, in a lot of cases, it says that for this standard as well as others, the rationale for the recognition is that the, the recognition contradicts either FDA guidance or data from literature or information from other published sources. So again, those are like the two key things that I look for in there. Then they also give a transition period for the standard, the new standard. So, you know, when the standard that they currently recognize, when it'll be superseded by the recognition of the current standard in terms of declarations of conformity. So that transition period, I think, for Part 18 goes out to July 10th of 2022. And then after... This is interesting, though, Don, because as we know, so the old one is really old, 2006, right? And that the FDA has had things evolve already as far as their expectations and chemical characterization that's not documented in that standard, maybe somewhat documented in their biocompatibility guidance. But there's been an evolution of things leading up to 2020. So I guess if a customer were to ask me today, do I have to to be working with 2020 for my Part 18? I wouldn't say, well, the FDA has given you two more years. I would say yes. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And and a lot of what you a lot of what you would expect to see in the standard if you've gotten if you've received deficiencies from the FDA, you won't find in there. Right. The answer's not necessarily in the standard. Yep. Yeah, you won't find it in their biocomp guidance either in some cases. Right. So you know, just because you feel confident that you have a testing program set up based on the current version of 2020 and you know that the FDA recognizes it and you went in and made sure that you were, you know, not doing something that they don't recognize in terms of their extent of recognition, that might be like half the battle, (laughs) quite honestly. You might be closer, but not where you need to be 100% possible. Maybe you are. Yeah, a lot of this you only can learn by by trying and experience and getting the feedback and and answering yeah. and going again. So, all right, let's look at the extent. So the first one is clause 5.5, second and third sentences they don't recognize. What's that about, yeah. Don? Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, to even make sense of this, you have to have the standard open in front of you, going back and forth to see what in the world clause 5.5 second and third sentences actually would be. So clause 5.5 talks about the analytical evaluation threshold. And so the second and third sentences, AET should be 
derived from a safety-based threshold such as TTC, but if this is not practically achievable, an analytical threshold such as the limit of quantitation can be used as the reporting threshold. However, the difference between AET and the LOQ shall be considered in the toxicological risk assessment and the difference shall be justified. So again, they indicate that they don't recognize what I just read. And they say that those sentences that I just read are in conflict with published literature articles. And they list out two literature articles that you can look up at to maybe better understand the the parts that they don't recognize or the reasoning that they don't recognize this. I mean, if I had to just look at the sentences that they don't recognize, my my initial thought would be is that based on what I've seen from the FDA and and how AETs are typically calculated, the dose-based threshold that gets plugged into your AET formula typically is a TTC limit. And typically it's a for FDA especially, but you can even from a global standpoint, ISO 21726 gives us some of those TTC limits that we could plug in as the DBT when we calculate the analytical evaluation threshold. And from what I've seen, that that's certainly been the preference from the FDA is that, you know, some number from ISO 21726 would be plugged into, you know, my AET formula to uh, calculate that versus using the limit of quantitation. But again, there might be more in, I haven't, you know, thoroughly read those two uh, references that the FDA has. There might be more there to expand on that logic, but just at a, at a initial glance at it, that's, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. All right. So the second one is clause seven, second paragraph, and then they have a specific phrase quoted, quote, to assist in any toxicological risk assessment, unquote. So they don't accept that phrase. Yeah. And the whole, the whole sentence, <laughs> you know, the phrase is at the end of the sentence. And it says, as necessary and appropriate, identified substances in the test solutions could be grouped into compound classes based on structural or functional group similarities to assist in any toxicological risk assessment. And what they don't recognize is the ending to assist in any toxicological risk assessment. And the rationale that's given is that that phrase is in conflict with published literature, and it gives us literature articles three, four, and five referenced to look at. And again, these references that they're citing, the first one is a, an OEC document on uh, chemical committees, committees working group on chemicals, pesticides, and biotechnology. The other one is... Well, that one's specifically a guidance on grouping of chemicals. So yeah, yeah. that so kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yep. And then the other one, extractables and leachables and pharmaceuticals and biologics. And the third one, I think, was... Uh, yeah, so the third one's more just general speaking in terms of uh, read-across approaches in toxic Yeah. Yeah. So, again, funnels around that the idea or the logic for grouping things together. Certainly, you know, if this was from a testing perspective, you know, I I would expect test reports that I'm given 
or that a toxicologist is given to not group things together based on compound classes or structural groups or similarities, but rather to report them individually, then give them to the toxicologist and then let the toxicologist in their assessment determine if it is justifiable for certain items to be grouped together. And I think maybe that's what the FDA is pointing to those three literature sources for is to make sure that that's done appropriately. In some cases, it seems it would seem that based on structural functional group similarities, it might be appropriate to group things together. But again, I think you're going to have to leave that up to your toxicologist to make sure that they're doing it. And then from an FDA perspective, doing it in a manner that is discussed in those three literature uh, sources that were cited. Okay. All right. So the third one is table D.3 in clause D.5 of Annex D. What's wrong with this table, Don? <laughs> it looks good to me. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it, this was the one that I, I think uh, myself and some of our colleagues were, were pretty much putting money down. If we were betting people, we were betting on this one not to be recognized by the FDA. So this da- table and Annex D is uh, uh, potential surrogate extraction vehicles for correlating chemical to biological testing. So it's got two columns in it, and it says column, the first column is extraction vehicle for biological testing, and then the other column is potential, I guess the emphasis now is on potential, potential surrogate extraction vehicle for chemical testing. So probably the one that jumped, that you know, easy example. So in your sensitization, irritation, acute systemic tox testing, maybe you used vegetable oil, something like sesame seed oil for uh, as your extraction vehicle. They indicate in this table that that is a potential surrogate for that vegetable oil would be one-to-one volume-to-volume ethanol and water. And it gives a reference. Reference is cited reference 25 in ISO 10993 part 18 2020 is, is referred to. Likewise, if you use cell culture media with serum, then uh, a surrogate for that per the standard is two to three volume to volume mixture of ethanol and saline. They reference um, citation 38 as support for that. And so the, the FDA, again, they don't recognize the table. So I think the FDA is questioning the logic for some or all of those biological testing surrogates, you know, things that can be used on uh, for chemical testing. And they cite my guidance for industry preparation of pre-market submissions for food contact substances as their citation and the FDA's extent of recognition for, you know, basically the conflict. So the FDA indicates that this table in part 18 is in conflict with the published document reference number six, the one that I just read on, on foods contact substances. So, you know, I looked at that guidance a little bit and, you know, it, it, it talks about appropriate extraction vehicles for containers that are exposed to, you know, beer and wine, just as examples. So, you know, the concentration of ethanol that you might use in your extraction to extract those containers might be, you know, similar to the alcohol content of you know, whatever you're putting in in there, whether it be beer, wine, or some other spirits, I guess. But it also talks about, you know, fatty food substances, 
more acidic food substances that might go into containers as well and potential extraction vehicles there. So there's a little bit of a, you know, I haven't dug into the details to figure out how you use that document as a substitute for this table. But again, I think it's just a matter of the FDA having a guidance that they feel is relevant as a reference as compared to this listing of, of uh, potential surrogates for the, the, that's in Part 18. In some right. cases, I mean, I don't think there's any issue. I mean, if you use water for an extraction vehicle and biological testing, you could use water for your chemical characterization testing. You know, it's the same thing. I think it's these, the ones that are a little bit more interesting than that. The culture media, cell culture media with and without serum, vegetable oil, polyethylene glycol, those types of things where, you know, certainly there might be some questions raised depending on what you're trying to do as well. Uh -huh. I would tend to think the thing that most people would be trying to do is, you know, if I say, quote unquote, failed my genotoxicity test, then I use cell culture media with serum as my extraction vehicle. You know, my chemist isn't going to be happy if I give them culture media with serum in it and tell them to analyze it. So what could I use as a surrogate in the standard, you know, points you in the direction of a two to three volume to volume ethanol saline mixture. Again, if that's the approach that you're taking, just be aware that that could be called into question because FDA doesn't recognize the table that you might try to cite for such a thing. Right. Okay. So the next one is formula E2 and paragraph preceding formula E2 and the two paragraphs <laughs> following the formula E2 in clause E.2 of Annex E. So this one had some errors. Is that what that they're going to be corrected when they re-release the standard? Yeah, yeah. And the comment from the FDA in terms of what they don't recognize, they, they indicate just that, you know, that this uh, clause has technical errors and will be corrected by ISO in the following publication. So that it's supposed to be getting corrected. I don't know the timing of that correction for the formula, but Mainly, it's, it's the formula that's used to calculate the uncertainty factor that you then use in the calculation of your analytical evaluation threshold. You know, I'm pretty sure I could have said that whole sentence almost with nothing but acronyms, but I pretty much so. Yeah. so. <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, the calculation for the uncertainty factor right now is basically the mean of the response factor from a reference database divided by one minus T times the standard deviation. T is the, the desired degree of confidence and the standard is the standard deviation in the response factor database. So that formula basically is the formula that they're saying is, is incorrect. And it's supposed to be replaced by one divided by one minus the RSD, where the RSD is the relative standard deviation in the database of response factor, response factors for suitable reference substances. So again, these response factors are, are the response factors established within a laboratory, within their database, within their method for, again, suitable reference standards, accounting for the difference between, you know, the chemical that they're trying to quantify as compared to maybe the reference standards that were used in the development of the method. 
and account for basically some differences in those responses. So it requires the a database to be established so that the laboratory can then define what the uncertainty factor is that they need to incorporate into the calculation of the analytical evaluation threshold. And you'll see typically uncertainty factors, you know, ranging from, you know, one, if it's the actual analyte that that you're looking at is actually one of the standards to, you know, something like on the scale of two, I've seen four, get much bigger than four and almost questions the usefulness of the method that you're looking at. But but again, it all is in relation to the uncertainty factor and how that's uh, estimated based on what the standard is. So again, watch out for something to come out in terms of working group 14 as they make adjustments to that standard so that that formula can get corrected. Okay. And then the last one says example C2 in clause E.4 of Annex E. We don't recognize this example. Yeah. And in this case, they, they indicate that this example is in conflict with another recognized standard from the FTA, which is ISO 21726. So I, I've mentioned ISO 21726 already. And so in this example, it talks about using base thresholds and specifically the dose base threshold of 120 micrograms per day. So in the example, they talk about ICHM7 and you know, just be aware that ICHM7 is referenced in ISO 21726 and is the basis for a lot of the dose-based threshold limits that are now in ISO 21726. But anyways, they talk about the dose-based threshold of 120 micrograms per day, which actually is the largest dose-based threshold listed in ISO 21726 for uh, potentially mutagenic substances. And the lowest DVT dose-based threshold is 1.5 micrograms per day. And 1.5 is also mentioned in, in this discussion, in this example. But in the example, they are talking about a permanent implant. And they present the idea that because exhaustive extractions were performed and the assumption made that all of the chemicals that were in the exhaustive extractions would be released in a single day, that, you know, Considering all those things, one could apply a 120 microgram per day limit as your dose based threshold. And again, FDA is simply stating that they don't recognize this example. And I would tend to believe that the FDA would expect you to not use 120, but to use 1.5, the smaller number um, listed in ISO 21726, because it's a permanent contacting device. So not following the logic that because it was exhaustive and, you know, we're looking at all extractables to come out in a single day, you know, in a bolus dose response or release that, you know, they, they basically aren't, aren't agreeing with that approach, which is kind of a downer because I've sort of used that approach before. But in saying that, I've seen that type of response from the FDA as well, that they disagreed with that approach, albeit. When I've seen it used, it's it's one of many things that are being discussed, not the only thing, in terms of the the limit that's being applied. Okay. So I think, yeah, I think that's the the key thing. So, you know, not saying that 
you know, you still can't try to use 120 for a permanent contacting device following exhaustive extractions, but just be aware that the FDA might have different expectations and they're kind of stating that by not recognizing this example. All right. Well, I, I think in general, Don, if you were to summarize that, <laughs> would you say that, <laughs> would you say that, I mean, in general, this doesn't really affect the way we utilize part 18 and submit to the FDA. There's a few things, maybe that last one being the biggest, but in general, does it change much the way that people were performing their testing before the FDA came out with this? I would say no, especially as well. I mean, if you've been interacting with the FDA in the area of chemical characterization, I mean, you likely now we're already exposed to some of these comments and the expectations from the FDA point of view. I, I don't think these items are that big a deal as long as you recognize them as you're as you're starting to plan it. And 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 really that last one that we talked about is it's just a again something that you just want to watch out for so that you don't try to make an argument by itself that the FDA could just simply say we don't recognize that concept. Now, if you have two or three other things to support you in addition to that, then I think it's still worth putting in as part of your discussion just to, you know, help frame the situation. But, but overall, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see these as being huge showstoppers for somebody saying, look, I wanted to use Part 18 and now I can't because the FDA doesn't recognize, you know, these right. five, five things. Right. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, there's other things in the standard, like you sh mentioned, Sherry, at the beginning, where the FDA has already called out, you know, when the standard was developed. There's, I think, two things in the standard where the FDA has already said, we would expect this, not what right. is in the standard. And there's footnotes for that in the standard already. So keep an eye out for those as well. Right. Okay. Well, I think... We've covered them all, and I understand a little bit better what the what the differences are, and, and hopefully everybody found this valuable. Don, thank you again for your time. No problem, and uh, we'll all, you know, keep our eyes out for other things to show up from the FDA or wherever, and, uh, and move forward with characterization as best we can. Right. <laughs> That's been the theme lately, right? <laughs> <laughs> it has. It has. All right. Well, thanks, y'all, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biochem Chatability, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.